the sermon text for this morning is Isaiah 51, 9 through 52, 12. You can find that on the pages, on pages 612 and 613 of the Pew Bible. Uh, for our scripture reading this morning, we're going to focus specifically on chapter 52, verses 1 to 12. That's on page 613 if you're using the Pew Bible. So please stand with me for the reading of the word. So this is Isaiah chapter 52, verses 1 to 12. This is the word of the Lord to us. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck. O captive daughter of Zion, for thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers well, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. You have a seat. Good morning again, Bethel. <clears throat> All right, well, as Pastor Tyler said, we are going to continue our study on Isaiah 52, 53. So if you're still there, um, that's what we're going to be considering, those verses um, that he mentioned. Uh, it's on page 613, 612 and 613 in the Pew Bible. So as we dive in here to Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, I want you to think about something. The question, who am I, is pretty relevant uh, in our culture, in our world today, there's all kinds of cultural narratives out there having to do with identity. I mean, I wish I had more time to tease out a few. Um, if you just start to listen for that, in, and it can be in movies, on television, you'll hear it in the gender identity debates. You'll hear it in the debates and dialogues concerning race relations. Um, it intersects with vocation, all kinds of relationships, everything, really. 
How do people self-identify? Who am I? Who are you? It has to do with how secure or insecure we feel. I mean, listen for that as well. You hear it all over the place. Well, um, several hundred years ago, John Newton, a writer of the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, right? He was a slave trader. And how despicable is that? 1700s, he lived. He was a slave trader. And then he became a Christian. And so by that amazing grace of God, he came to know himself, to know who he was. And he wrote those famous words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. So I was blind, but now I see. So you can imagine how hard it would be for someone like that to come to terms with their past, who they were as they move forward in who they, you know, were becoming. But you can see how the amazing grace of God had taken root when you hear what he wrote in another time later on in his life in answer to this who am I question. He wrote this, I am not what I want to be. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I will be. But I am not what I was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. So do you know who you are? And how secure are you in who you are? Well, Isaiah 51 and 52 are actually preserved for us to help us with those questions. So a little bit of orientation. If you're visiting or newer, um, or maybe you've missed um, some of this Isaiah series, it's a big book, and it's hard to get our arms around it. So just a little bit of orientation really quick. The book breaks down into two main chunks, Verses, chapters 1 to 39 and 40 to 66. And 1 to 39 are filled with all kinds of bad news because the people of God are just rebelling against him, sticking their fingers in their ears. But chapters 40 to 66 are written for people who, because of that, have been sent away into, in, into exile. They're kind of under the judgment of God. And so they're away from home. They're in exile. They're under this stifling and sometimes oppressive hand of a foreign power. And so they're distraught, they're despairing, they have trouble believing that God will ever set them free. They felt like they were, they felt like exile was the main problem, unfortunately. They even thought at times God was the problem. Why isn't he doing anything? Why isn't he acting to deliver us? Maybe you felt like that before. But God did have a plan to deliver them, not just from their circumstances, but a deeper deliverance to actually deliver them from themselves from their inner slavery, slavery to sin, slavery to unbelief. And so what was he going to do? He was going to raise up Cyrus, this pagan king, to deliver them back to their homeland, and that happened at real time in history. But Isaiah also talks about, and he brings the focus in these chapters, to a greater king that he's raising up to deliver them from that deeper slavery, the slavery to sin. So last week we actually heard this greater king speaking, saying repeatedly, listen to me, give attention to what I have to say. And last week, again, we were given these multiple encouragements, gracious reasons to give attention to this greater king. If you look back at verse 4 of chapter 51, you can just listen in on one piece of this encouragement. 
It sounds like this, verses 4 and 5. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm, my strength, they wait. So you can imagine these people in exile hearing that and saying, well, where is it? You say you're going to set things right. You say your deliverance draws near. When are you going to do it? And then 51.9 records how they actually did respond. Um, that's our first point. Before we dive in, let's just pray briefly one more time and ask for God's help. Oh, Father, thank you for this morning thus far already. You are so great, and we are in such great need of you. And I love it that we were all singing, give us Christ or else we die. How hopeful that is. If that was the cry of our hearts, if that's our prayer, how hopeful it is because you're a God who gives grace to the humble. And if we recognize our need, you will give us what we need. And everything that we need is found in Christ. So may that prayer just continue to reverberate in our minds and our hearts. Give us more of Christ. We need more grace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can deal with our sin. Nothing but your grace can help us. And I pray that as we experience that grace, it would just fill us up with joy. And as we think of you, as we think about the gospel, we just want to say hallelujah because you're great and your grace is amazing. And we can know who we are. We can be secure because of the good news of the gospel, because of the work of Christ. So would you please, what we know not, would you teach us this morning? What we have not, would you give us this morning? And what we are not, would you make us? Through Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so like I said, 51.9 is the beginning of our section here, and it records how they did respond. And basically, they're telling God to wake up. Okay, point number one there, there's a, you'll see the, the slides up here. There's also an outline in your bulletin if it's easier for you to follow along that way. So look at verse 9, awake, awake, and that kind of doubling shows how urgent and how emphatic they are in this. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Arm of the Lord, is that's a, a metaphor for his strength. Show us how strong you are. Awake, as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Wasn't, was it not you who cut Rahab, it's a reference to Egypt, this mighty power, wasn't it you who cut Rahab to pieces that pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea? right, the Red Sea at the Exodus, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over. In other words, you've done it before. Why don't you do it again? We want to see you flex your muscles on our behalf. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Do it like you've done it before. And then what they do is they actually pull one of God's own promises out and they lay it at his feet, this next verse, verse 11, is word for word from 35.10, Isaiah 35.10. And there it's placed as a promise of what God's going to do. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return, 
ransomed, they're redeemed. And come home to Zion, the city of God, with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You can imagine, they want to experience that, right? So come on, if you're going to make good on that promise, then you need to wake up and show your delivering, redeeming strength. Free us. Bring us home. So here's this faithful remnant, or at least the faith is awakening to the voice of the Lord in exile, calling on him to act, and they're using his own words, and they're telling him to keep his promises. So what do you think of that, the way that they talked to the Lord here? Do you sound kind of cheeky to you? It's kind of a British phrase, but, you know, disrespectful, a little bit, little bit of an attitude. How do you expect God to respond to somebody telling him to wake up? How would you expect God to respond if you told God to wake up and do something? Well, let's find out what he, how he responds. Look at the second point. Verse 12. I, I am he who comforts you. So remember the doubling in verse 9, awake, awake, which was a doubling of urgency and emphasis? Well, this is a doubling of assurance. He wants them to be sure of him. He doesn't say, are you kidding me? You wake up. Don't you know I never sleep? If anybody's asleep at the switch, it's you. No, no, that's not how he responds. He's reminding them that he is the God who keeps his promises. Earlier in Isaiah, chapter 12, verse 1, it said, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. And then Isaiah 40, when the, the hinge, the it turns to good news in Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly, Isaiah. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she's received from the Lord's hand for all her sins. And then the Lord asks them a question. I am he who comforts you. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? Who are you that you've forgotten me, the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? And who are you that you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy? And where is the wrath of the, the oppressor? So if you're so afraid, do you know who you are? You must have forgotten. I mean, maybe you think you're a cosmic orphan. Maybe you think you're worthless and abandoned. Maybe you think you're hopeless. Do you think you're just totally on your own? And so you fear all these threats that are bigger than you that you can't protect yourself from? If you're so afraid, do you know who I am? I, I am he who comforts you. And then look at verse 15. I am Yahweh. I'm the Lord, the self-existent, self-sustaining one who sustains everything, the whole universe, spoke the whole universe into being. I'm your God. I'm your God. I'm the one who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts, he's the commander of the armies of heaven. That's his name. And so if I am for you, who can be against you? 
If omnipotence is on your side, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, where is the wrath of the oppressor? And then God says in verse 14, he who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I mean, this is the God who specializes in releasing captives, of freeing the enslaved. But more than just being freed from their circumstances, same thing with us, more than just getting us out of a jam, you know, the foxhole faith stuff where you just run to God when you get in a jam and then he gets you out and you forget about him. He wouldn't wouldn't love us if that's all he did for us, the circumstantial freedom. He wants to free us at the deepest level. Slavery to ourselves, our selfishness, our pride, our foolish independence, our rebellion. So we need freed from the slavery to sin, and that only comes through knowing who God is and really knowing who we are. In fact, you could say it the other way around. You and I, we will not know who we are until we know who I am is, who God is. Um, John Calvin's famous Institutes of the Christian Religion begins like this. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. Again, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him, from seeing who he is, to scrutinize himself. So just maybe stop here briefly, encouragement for this week and kind of like every week. Do you know how helpful it could be to remember two things this week, every week? Who God is, I, I am he who comforts you. And who are you that you're afraid? Like regularly, do you you realize that would pretty much cover just about every problem you face? To remember who God is and who you are. And reorient to what's true. So, These people in exile, they call on God to wake up and do something. He responds by reminding them who he is and then by asking them if they know who they are. And then he helps them know who they are. So point number three, verses 17 to 23, he says, wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of, cup of staggering. They've been under his judgment. The people have been under his judgment. They deserved it. Wake yourself. There's none to guide her, her, the people, the city of God, Jerusalem, in exile. There's none to guide her. Among all the sons she's born, there's none to take her by the hand. Among all the sons she's brought up. In other words, there's no leader. There's no deliverer. There's nobody to help you. Look at verse 19. These two things have happened to you. Who's going to console you? Devastation and destruction. Property is total, is completely devastated. Famine and sword, that has to do with people. So property and people, totally a wreck. Who will comfort you? 
Your sons have fainted. They're the young, strong ones. They should be able to lead, right? No, they've fainted. They lie at the head of the street like an antelope in a net. They're full of the wrath of, of the Lord, which is a way bigger deal than the wrath of the oppressor. So does it sound like this group is in any condition to wake themselves? Wake yourself. Wake yourself. No, it sounds like they're more like in a spiritual coma. Does it sound like they can stand up? No, they're drunk to the point of staggering under the judgment of God. In other words, they're hopeless if their hope for waking and standing lies with them. That's the bad news about who we are. Who they are, but it's also true of all of us. We are hopeless if we have to save ourselves, if we have to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We have to first accept the bad news that we deserve the wrath of God, that we're actually under the wrath of God apart from his saving grace. And we are more helpless than we ever have wanted to admit. But when we do accept that bad news, that opens the way to the good news. Look at verse 21. Therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, uh, thus says your Lord, the Lord your God who pleads the cause of his people. (laughs) He's the judge, but he'll also plead the cause of his people. How sweet is that? Behold, I've taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. How in the world is that going to happen? How's that going to happen? Well, next week, chapter 53. Okay? We won't go any further on that, but those of you that know chapter 53, see where this is headed. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you, and you have made your back like the ground, like the street for them to pass over. So they've been abused. So wake yourself? Hardly. They were passed out. But while they were sleeping, God acted. Just like at the Exodus. How did the wrath of God get removed from the Israelites and put into the hand of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. How'd that happen? The Passover. So the Israelites, they didn't experience the judgment of God on their firstborn sons, right? Because they were under the blood of the Lamb. The cup of wrath was put into the hands of their tormentors, and they were freed from captivity. (laughs) Hmm. Does that sound like a familiar pattern? Isaiah 53. It's the gospel. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened on its mouth. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many to be accounted righteous, right relationship with God, and he shall bear their iniquities, just like the Passover lamb. That blood covered the households and protected them from the wrath of God, the judgment of God. So we, you and I, we deserve the cup of God's righteous wrath against sin. That's the cup we deserve. We can't do anything to pass this cup off on anybody else. We're guilty. Bad news. But God so loved the world that he sent his only son And his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, was willing to drink the cup that we deserve for us. 
He drank it on the cross in our place. And so if you are a Christian this morning, Jesus drank that cup for you. Quite literally going through hell for you. He drank the cup to the dregs, set it down, said, it is finished. And then he rose victoriously on the third day, and you know what? He won a new cup for you. The cup of the new covenant in his blood. It's the cup of salvation. So again, when you become a Christian, you, you drink from that cup for the first time, and you get to drink from it all the days of your life. It's a cup full of grace and mercy and every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint, if God is for me, who can be against me? You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. So if you're, if you're not a Christian, listen, Jesus offers that cup to you this morning. You and I, all of us, we deserve the cup of God's wrath. We're all guilty. We know we haven't even kept our own standards, let alone God's. So you've got to own the bad news. You've got to accept that. Can't save ourselves. So acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge you can't save yourself. Turn your back on that old life and all your efforts to try to measure up and just accept the cup of Mercy and grace and love from the one who died in your place. So think about the logic of this passage so far. The people told God to wake up. He reminded them of who he is. And he asked them if they knew who they were. Then he told them to wake themselves. But he reminded them of how helpless they were. And then he told them what he did while they were sleeping. Now he gives them their wake-up call. That's the flow of things here. It's his voice now that wakes the sleeper. Look at point number four. Wake up, wake up in 52, 1 to 6. Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Who are you? This, look, at, look for the identity markers here. Remember, who am I? Who are you? Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. All these identity markers. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing. You shall be redeemed without money. Look down at verse 6. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. So put yourself in the story here, okay? The picture is this slave in chains, laying in the dust, weak and faint. But then you hear a voice like thunder, and light streams into your cell, and you wake up, and as your eyes adjust to the light, you see who it is who's speaking. It's the Lord Jesus saying, here I am. Or in Isaiah 60, verse 1, it says, arise, Shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. He's the light of the world, shining on you. Ephesians 5.14 picks up on this. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So imagine you wake, there's the Lord Jesus, here I am. And there's this bath drawn for you so you can wash away the dirt. And there's food and drink waiting for you so you can be strengthened from your faintness and your weakness. 
And then there's these clothes. <laughs> these beautiful garments. Clothes fit for royalty, and they're laid out. Who, who laid these out? What? All of it free of charge. You see that in verse 3? You shall be redeemed without money. Listen carefully to this quote by Ray Ortland. This is great. The inner logic of the gospel is you shall be redeemed without money. The community of redemption is open to all alike because God refuses every penny of our self-righteous moral currency. Every one of us has nothing to offer God. Nothing. What all of us admire about ourselves and the way we preen ourselves in the mirrors of our proud self-awareness, it's all unclean to God and oppressive to others. But to all overbearing self-flatterers, anybody, anybody? Okay, you're pathetic. You need to know yourself. Um, I love you. But to all overbearing self-flatterers, God is offering true worth by sheer grace. Christ pays our way in advance, in full, by his own merit, or the deal's off. God has no pay-as-you-go plan, though we wish he did. Then we could retain our pride. It is humiliating for accomplished people to be given free entry, end quote. So again, think of the flow of this passage, removal of wrath, back there in verses 22 and 23 of 51, and then putting on removal of wrath, and then putting on beautiful garments. <laughs> it's the gospel, isn't it? Maybe this is just one story with one author. Yes, anybody? Amen to that? I don't, you know what I'm saying? Not, this isn't a bunch of random pearls on a string. This is one big story. So we were slaves of sin. Jesus takes our filthy clothes and he gives us the clean robes of righteousness, beautiful garments of honor and privilege that we don't deserve. Amen. Do you need to hear that? I, I need to hear that again and again and again. Amen. I'm glad we were singing it this morning. We need to believe who we are. That, that's hard. It's harder than it seems. We need to become who we are. We need to believe who we are. Listen to Derek Webb. What Isaiah 52, 1-6 does is challenge Zion to see herself, and this is us as well as God's people, not as her enemies see her, or even as she sees herself, but as the Lord sees her. In his eyes, she is as beautiful as a bride and as regal as a queen. She is beyond price. No one whom the Lord values so highly can be worthless. No matter what indignities they've suffered or perpetrated. We need to see who we are, how God sees us. Okay, another example here. Did you, did you read Unbroken? Did you see Unbroken? Okay, if you saw Unbroken, you didn't read the book. You've got to read the book. The movie's pathetic compared to the book. The book is more cinematic than the movie. Sorry. It's just true. Anyway, if, you didn't, if you're not familiar this, with this, um, Louis Zamperini, um, incredible story of this man who was a POW in Japanese prison camp for camps, actually, for over two years. He was horribly treated. So it's, it's just like 
hard to even believe survival story. I won't go into the details. But the fact that he even made it to the prison camp and then survived for two years or over two years is, is unbelievable. He was especially tormented by a guard named uh, Mutsuhiro Watanabe, and he was nicknamed the Bird. Okay, when the Allied forces finally won the war, they came to free the prisoners. These men, okay, these guys in prison camps, were obviously very weak and gaunt, right? The book tells how when they were all being attended to by medical personnel and prepared for return to the U.S., they were given lots of food, okay? And you can imagine how they were not, they had just incredibly meager rations for years, a um, couple years. And so all this food is laid out in front of him. And Louis is stuffing food into his pockets like a street urchin at, you know, Howard Johnson's free breakfast. Howard Johnson, that's like defunct, isn't it? It's probably, okay, comfort in, whatever. Um, so one of the nurses or one of the ladies that was there even had to reassure him that he was free. Like, there would be plenty to eat from now on. But he'd been a slave so long, and he had to fight for so long that he, he would need to be reminded again and again who he was. The reality of his freedom would need to be pressed in over and over again, especially because he had these nightmares of the bird continuing to torment him and pursue him. The bird had no power over him any longer, but he oftentimes had a lot of power over him. And it can be the same for us. We have been set free. We are free in Christ. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free, but we can forget who we are and become enslaved all over again because we end up listening to the voice of our old master. We cower again. Wait, where's the wrath of the oppressor? Rather than putting on strength, not our own strength, but the strength of the Lord, which is our fighter verses for the last few weeks, right? Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Putting off our old self, putting on Christ, those beautiful garments, knowing who we are and being secure rather than having to prove ourselves in the meritocracy. So we need to preach the gospel <laughs> to ourselves so we can become who we are and we need to preach the gospel to everyone else because our God reigns. Look at point number five. Our God has come and he reigns. Verses seven to ten. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. He's king Every knee will bow. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his, I love this, bared his holy arm. It's like he rolled up his sleeve. Imagine God rolling up his sleeves. Like, okay, I want to be on his side and not his enemy. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is awesome. Okay, so everything, all of life is built on knowing who God is and knowing who you are. Okay, so here's some serious knowledge to lay hold of in both of those two categories. Here's the picture. 
And you can go look at 2 Samuel 18 for an example of this, this storyline, this kind of picture, what's underneath what's going on here. You can read it later. But imagine two kingdoms. This is ancient Near East. You have to kind of get out of your century here. Two kingdoms, right? And this kingdom wants to beat up on this kingdom. And so what do they do? They're at war out in the plain, out here, somewhere in between these two capital cities. And it's not just back then in their mindset, not just your warriors against their warriors. It's not just army against army. It's your God versus their God or our God. So if you win the war, what do you do? If you win the war out here, what do you do? You can't break open the sat phone and call home. Hey, we won. You can't tweet hashtag, you know, victory. You send a runner, the fastest one you have. You send a messenger, and you better believe that the, the city is waiting in anticipation. So imagine you're in the city. What, you need to know if you're, you're going to have to get ready to hunker down and face a battle because there could be a, an invasion coming. If they lose out there in the battle, the army's coming to you. It could be imminent death. Or you're going to know the just incredible thrill and relief of victory. So if you see a weary band of retreating soldiers, you know what that means. That's not good news. But if, on the other hand, you see the spring in the step of a fast messenger, those are beautiful feet. The watchman sees those feet, and news spreads very quickly that the city is going to be, I mean, what happens? The city just gets spring-loaded for a party when that messenger enters the gates, catches his breath, and shouts the news to the gathered people, bring good news. We are no longer at war. We will have peace and safety. We've been delivered from our deadly foes by our God. Rejoice and be glad. Our God reigns. He's been victorious over every rival, this evil power that threatened us. So if you've been awakened to this good news, how are your neighbors and how are the nations going to see the salvation of God? Well, Paul quotes this section in Romans 10. He writes, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they going to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, sharing the good news? That's not just professionals. It's all of us. And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So our God has come. Christ has come. And he won the greatest victory over sin and death and hell. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father, he reigns, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And until then, we must go and tell. Last point, verses 11 and 12. Depart, depart. Again, doubled for urgency, just like with awake, awake. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Do you hear those Exodus themes again? 
In fact, what's being talked about here is something better than the first exodus. You will not go out in haste. Is Pharaoh going to change his mind? Is he going to come after us with the army? But still, there's Exodus themes. We ought to be thinking of that. So can you imagine? It would be crazy to stay in Egypt once God had worked mightily to deliver his people. And so as Jesus accomplished the second Exodus, the greater Exodus, to free us from captivity to our sin, we can't just stay in the prison, prison of our sin. We need to leave our old life behind. I mean, how crazy would it be to bring along little idols of the Egyptian gods who just got crushed by Yahweh? No, you leave it behind. Depart. Don't, don't bring those unclean things. In fact, it's really interesting. He's talking, he's talking to the whole people of God, and he says, you who bring the vessels, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, who did that? The priests? Oh, now it's a holy priesthood, all the people of God. So this is a better exodus, greater exodus. We can't stay comfortable with our sin. He's calling us to follow him. So don't bring any defilement with you as you leave the domain of darkness and travel home to the promised land with the Lord himself going before us and behind us. Do you see that? The divine escort all the way home. The Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be a rear guard. It's awesome. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me. And surely goodness and mercy will follow me, pursue me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's where we're headed. There's all kinds of good news in this passage. And so, as we go and tell, I'm going to close with two quotes here. As we go and tell, Ray Ortland says it well, and then Alec Motier to close. First, so we must be clear in our message and influence. We are bearing a holy thing out to the nations. Anything about us that might make the victory of God ambiguous or unattractive must go. The gospel is so beautiful, we have no right to contaminate it. We must purify ourselves of every unclean thing. You see, if we're actually bearing this good news, if we're taking it to the world, we don't want to unsay with our lives what we're saying with our lips, right? So we should leave that stuff behind so that our message and our life match up. And then finally, this last quote, the great objective, great fight, too, of the Christian life is to be what we are. Not seeking or striving after some future blessing, but exploring and experiencing ever more fully the complete salvation given to us in Jesus. Does not the Bible call him our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption? What more is there? Does not the Bible say that the Father has blessed us, past tense, with every spiritual blessing in Christ? So what more is there to give? Salvation is like a great treasure chest filled full of every possible blessing of God, and our task is to discover personally, progressively, ceaselessly, what has thus been given to us once for all. Suppose someone is pronounced cured after a long, weakening illness. Convalescence lies ahead with the constant choice between acquiescing in the body's experienced feebleness or acting resolutely, maybe even painfully, certainly progressively, on the expert diagnosis and slowly entering into newfound health. That is where we meet Isaiah. In effect, he's saying, 
Wrath is over. Holiness is yours. New life awaits. So wake up to what you are, who you are, and have. Believe that his wrath is a thing of the past. Dress yourself in your new robe of righteousness. Start walking the separated path. Yahweh has himself taken away his wrath, himself accomplished the total work of salvation, and himself will accompany you protectively on your journey. Let us ask ourselves, why does Ephesians 2.6 speak of us as already seated in the heavenly places? Or Colossians 3.1, that we were raised with Christ. This is a divine expert diagnosis, like the doctor's pronouncement, you are cured. We feel our weakness. We are summoned to lay hold on our strength, which is God's strength. So let's do that. Let's pray, and we're going to sing. Oh, you are a great God, and your grace is so amazing. Thank you for freeing us from our deepest slavery and making us your honored sons and daughters. Please, Lord, help us so that we can become what we are. And I pray that this amazing grace would thrill us and we would sing to you because you are the greatest king. You're the only king. You're the king of kings. And you alone deserve our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.